Funding for this podcast comes from the members of Massachusetts Public Radio and the John A. and Maria L. Douglas Foundation, supporting investigative journalism on public radio stations across America, and from listeners like you. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is a serial podcast. Please be sure to listen to the episodes in order. This is Episode 5, Alice Crocker. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the podcast in iTunes. No jury's going to convict me for shooting you on my property. Men who think they are special. Men with a calling. They're the most dangerous of all. My name is Rebecca Greenberg. I am Alice Crocker's ex-girlfriend. Get comfortable, Emma Kersey. This story is long. You are making me angry, Emma. Not only did you assault me, but you stole from me. No jury's gonna convict me for shooting you on my property. Oh, he has a gun. So we better keep running. We don't have a car. How much longer do you think we can run? He's not gonna kill us. He's just trying to scare us. The next bullet will be aimed at one of us. He's not playing. I'm Emma Kersey from Massachusetts Public Radio. You're listening to Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. Let's keep going. We'll find someone once we reach the main road. I'm exhausted. I I feel like I'm going to get sick. He's getting closer. We really need to go. Come on, John, move. Lights! There's a car coming. Get in right now and turn that thing off. We jumped in the back of Nurse Russo's car as fast as we could, John and I catching our breath. I was covered in sweat, exhausted, and still terrified. After riding for a half an hour, we stopped at a motel and followed her to her room. Nurse Russo had been hiding out just a few miles away from Moreau's Cove. She gave me one of her t-shirts and told me to take a hot shower. I obeyed as if I was a child and she was my mother. There were so many thoughts going through my head. We'd fallen into a trap. Merlord was waiting for us. Had Mark set us up? Or had his dad known he would talk to me and used him to deliver the bait? We'd walked into his trap like fools. Did Charles want to kill us or just scare us? He had plenty of chances to shoot at one of us. He could have opened fire while we were in the house or the moment he saw us running his way. Instead, he let us go with little struggle. There was a lot of anticipation and terror, but no physical harm. When I came out of the bathroom, Nurse Russo was reprimanding John. She had told us not to mess with Charles. She told us he was dangerous, and we ignored her advice. I asked her if I could turn on my recorder. I had a lot of questions, and I needed them on the record. How did you know where we would be? I heard it in your voice. I've known you for a long time, Emma. We've never been close, but I have seen you do stupid things over and over and over, and I recognize the signs. The timing was just luck. Coincidences seem to be a recurring theme here. Who is Charles Smith? 
He is a dangerous man who has dedicated his life to cleaning up messes around Marrow's Cove. He's a man who believes he has a higher purpose. Men who think they are special. Men with a calling. They're the most dangerous of all. He finds the gifts and sacrifices them. Your understanding is so limited. Have you heard the fable about the blind man who was holding onto an elephant by the trunk and thought it was a snake? Hmm. I haven't, but I'm sure it's very enlightening. Tell us what's happening. Help us understand. Emma, you are approaching this the wrong way. You are trying to solve a mystery that is way over your head. Solve Alice's murder. Stop chasing folk stories and conspiracies. This is a very straightforward murder case. The doctor killed her. His friend, the chief of police, is covering up for him. Prove that. That's the story worth telling. I can't tell this story without knowing the why. Why was Alice Crocker murdered? Because she remembered. She remembered what was done to her. She remembered the men involved, and when she did, she flipped out. There are men in Merrow's Cove with sick urges, and there are people, like Charles, willing to provide for them. I'm sure the truth will come out once Ananda is in jail. Sex slavery? Uh, Enough talking. Turn that thing off. You, You can't stay here. Just take the car. It's a rental. Bring it back in the morning. Just go home and rest. I couldn't sleep that night. I felt lost. I had no idea that the morning was about to greet me with news that would change everything. Hello? Is this Emma Kersey? Yes. Uh, Who am I speaking to? My name is Rebecca Greenberg. I am Alice Crocker's ex-girlfriend. Alice and Rebecca had broken up six months ago. It wasn't a friendly split, so when Rebecca didn't hear from Alice again, she wasn't surprised. They'd been together for almost three years. Rebecca was the eye behind the lens in all of Alice's lonely pictures. Alice was not out. She was obsessed with keeping our relationship a secret. I've been out since I was 16, and I'm what you would call a butch lesbian. Alice thought that if people saw a picture of us, they would immediately know. That's why she wasn't on social media. She didn't want anybody knowing who she really was. I never understood her worries. She grew up in foster care. She had reconnected with her mother as an adult, but they were not close. Her mom had gone from drug addict to born-again Christian. I'm sure she would not have been thrilled to hear that Alice was a lesbian. But I don't know why Alice would care. After their breakup, Alice told her friends she needed to leave Boston. She announced she was moving to a small town whose name nobody seemed to remember. Alice was excited about the job. It was a small clinic in a mostly rural area, she had said. That was three months ago. Nobody worried when Alice disappeared? She never did. Her friends say she texted them often. She never answered her phone, but she texted most of them daily. When did you realize something was wrong? A friend heard your podcast. He said there was a murder mystery podcast and the woman who had died had Alice's name. I knew it was her as soon as I heard the first episode. I contacted the police already and her mother. I'm leaving for Murrow's Cove tomorrow morning. I would love to meet with you. Of course. So, she was not a girl nobody would miss. She was just a very private person. Alice had a full life. She had friends. She had family a messy love life. She was just a regular 
20-something-year-old girl. It was just a matter of time until her disappearance would raise a concern. What now? We need to find out what the Boston police is doing. We need to talk again with Rebecca, and we need to contact Alice's friends and, and her family. I want to tell her story. I want people to know what were her hobbies, what music she liked, and what was her favorite restaurant. Things are going to get uncomfortable around here. Well, I really hope so. I want to tell you the story of Alice Crocker, but I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to hear it from the people who loved her, the people who had found out through this podcast that she had died, and who are now grieving the death of a sweet girl who had a passion for helping others. Well, I lived in Glenville, West Virginia when Alice was born. It's in the middle of the state and has maybe 12,000 people. Oh, I thought it was quiet and boring, but what did I know? I was a waitress at a diner and loved to party. Her father was a loser blessed with good looks. We were never in love, but boy, did we have fun. It sure was a surprise when I found out I was pregnant. That's Elizabeth Crocker, Alice's mother. And I was a shitty mom. I can admit that now. We moved out of Glenville when Alice was maybe five. We bounced around from one place to another until I met Mark. It was his idea to move to Boston, and that was the worst decision I ever made. No, no, the worst was getting hooked on heroin, but moving to Boston is up there. So they took Alice away when she was eight. It took me years to get clean, so I didn't see her grow up. By the time I was clean and ready to connect, she was 14 and wanted nothing to do with me. I didn't ask for custody or anything. I figured I had hurt her enough. Alice was a good student. She got a full scholarship to the University of Massachusetts nursing program. That's where she met Rebecca. We met at a party. Alice was not one to go to many parties, but this was her roommate's birthday party. I approached her. I'm not shy, she was beautiful. We talked for most of the night. Next day, we ran into each other on campus, and from then on, we seemed to find each other in the same places a lot. We started dating about a month after we met. Alice told me I was the first person she ever dated, man or woman. That's why, at first, I was understanding of her fear of coming out. We moved back to Boston together. We rented a small apartment in the South End and both got jobs at Beth Israel. It was luck. I'm not religious, but I would call it divine intervention. We were so in love and things were working out so well. I rarely pushed her about coming out. I thought that once we were established, it would be a natural next step. We met on my first day. I was fresh out of nursing school and was assigned to shadow Alice. She was a great nurse. She cared. She, she honestly cared about people. That's Jose Perez, Alice's best friend. Rebecca called him Alice's work husband. We were inseparable. It's, it's nice to have someone to, to vent freely, someone who understands you love your job, but some days are just hard. Alice was that person. Surprisingly, she rarely complained. She was so easygoing. I remember one day, a patient suddenly vomited all over her. She shrugged and, and said, this brings warm memories of my mother. And then she laughed and, and she meant it. She had a messed up childhood, but still she wasn't jaded. I had a messed up childhood too. 
strong parents, foster care. We had a lot in common, but her approach to life was so different. She was nice to be around. She was a delight to work with. Attentive, funny, hardworking, and very professional. I can't believe she's gone. You know, I gave her a recommendation for that job. I was sad she was leaving, but how could I deny her a recommendation? She was one of the best nurses I had ever worked with. Jennifer Sapansky was Alice's supervisor and one of the few people who knew about her relationship with Rebecca. I think it's safe to say that I was a mother figure for her. I think she saw coming out to me as a symbolic way of coming out to her mother. Of course I didn't care. I have many family and friends who are gays and lesbians. We live in Boston. We're very open-minded around here. Jose also knew, but I think that was it in the hospital. The rest of her co-workers knew little about who Alice was. Everybody loved her, and I guess they just understood she was just reserved. I asked Alice's mother about her daughter's fear of coming out. It's probably my fault. I gave her such poor examples when it came to men. I dated so many losers. They never touched her. I know your mind would go there right away. I was not the greatest mother, but I would never let that happen. She was around them, though. She saw they treated me. She probably thought all men were the same. If she would have told me, I could have helped her. There are ways to change, you know. There are good men out there, and there's treatments for people like Alice. Elizabeth doesn't believe people are born gay. She believes it's a choice and a sin. She said she knew about Alice. They never talked about it, but she said a mother always knows. Alice was confused, but I still loved her. You know, hate the sin, not the sinner. My silent acceptance was my penance for all the suffering she experienced because of me. I didn't approve, but I kept my mouth shut and prayed she'd ask for help. The breakup with Rebecca was rough for Alice. For months, she was a total mess. It was ugly. Hurtful things were said by the two of them, and in the end, there was so much bitterness, they couldn't stay together. It's ironic that the end started when Rebecca proposed. Rebecca loved Alice, everybody knows that, and Alice loved Rebecca too. The timing was just not right. I thought we were ready. Three years, three happy years. I put together an impromptu weekend in Maine. We stayed at this beautiful bed and breakfast. It was summer and it was a sunny day. We were sitting in a grassy area close to the lake. The lady at the bed and breakfast had prepared a picnic for us. We were both sitting on a blanket, but I still decided to kneel. I told her how much I loved her and that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. I told her I wanted to tell the world she was mine. She started crying. At first, I thought they were tears of happiness, but then she said no. What I thought would be the happiest day of my life became the most devastating. Soon after, Alice found a job in a small coastal town north of Boston. None of her friends could remember the name, but I would bet that that town was Murrow's Cove. She had told them she only had a phone interview, and she was immediately hired. Alice packed up and left town, promising her friends she'd be in touch soon. She didn't tell her mother she was leaving Boston, and she didn't tell Rebecca either.
Hello? Emma Kersey? Yes? Miss Kersey, I'm Detective Jason. I just arrived at Merle's Cove and I'd love to talk to you. I'm in charge of the Alice Crocker murder investigation. Detective Jason and I met at Dana's Diner. I'll play our conversation later on. But first, I want to share with you an interesting conversation I had with my friend and producer, John. You always bring me to the beach to talk about mermaids. Is that a subliminal tactic? (laughs) Maybe. Tell me what's on your mind. I don't think we should abandon the supernatural part of our investigation. I know the explanation to this murder case is a lot less magical and probably much more disturbing than the story of a village sacrificing virgins to sea creatures. They were virgins? I'm assuming. Aren't they always virgins? So why continue down that road? Because there is a connection. Probably not a supernatural connection. Still, the two things are linked. See, the story may be about men kidnapping young women for God knows what perverted purpose. I believe, though, and this is not new. This goes back many decades, sure, maybe even centuries. And aren't all myths a fantastical representation of actual events? Now, the reason behind Alice's death may be connected to crazy people who then believe these tales. Huh. That is a convincing argument. Hmm. So you know I can be a very convincing person. Okay. Then let's keep looking into this mermaid cult and find ways to connect it to our story. That means we need to take another road trip. Haven't we a painting to deliver? Nadia's painting. I'm sure our mermaid friend has a good idea of what's going on. She promised information in exchange for the painting. Worth a shot, though. I doubt she'll be too forthcoming. Now I remain hopeful. Hello? Nancy told me there's a detective in town. She said he probably wants to blame us for the death of that poor girl. You? The town. Us, the residents of this town. The nice and decent people of Marrow's Cove. The people who saw you growing up. Here we go. Don't disrespect your mother, Emma. Mom, that girl was murdered. She deserves justice. That's not what Dr. Ananda said. Dr. Ananda is a suspect. You should take what he said with a grain of salt. That's ridiculous. He and his family are outstanding people. You believe what you want, Mom. The truth is coming out, and people you love may disappoint you. Well, that already happened. I'm not taking the bait, Mom. Did you call this guy? The detective. Did you call him? I had nothing to do with that. I don't even know him. Alice's family informed the police, and the police took action. There's nothing out of the ordinary about this. He does want to talk to me, though. Don't accuse people of things you don't know, sweetheart. The people of this town are good people. We have a good life here. This town has been good to us. I can promise I will base all my accusations in facts. God, Emma. You won't get kicked out of Murrow's Cove, Mom. I won't ever be able to show my face out again, though. Love you, Mom. Love you, too. But this is not funny. Don't make me get your dad involved, Emma. I'm not 10 anymore, Mom. Bye. The arrival of Detective Jason seemed to get people nervous. That was a good thing. Nervous people make mistakes. Panicked criminals get sloppy. It was just a matter of time until those involved in Alice's murder would reveal themselves. Detective Jason is a mix of 90s Ethan Hawke and Andrew Garfield. He's tall and lanky. There's a clumsiness to his movements that 
keeps you on edge, waiting for him to spill something or knock something over. His face, on the other hand, is intense and full of conviction. He has the eyes of a man who knows focus and discipline, the kind of eyes I've seen in many soldiers returning from war zones. He's probably in his mid-30s. He wears his hair short and tight and has his nails professionally manicured, a detail that somehow seems a little out of place. Miss Kersey, I'm sorry, I, I don't feel comfortable discussing details of a case while you're recording. Well, we're not discussing anything that hasn't already been aired. All the information I have and I can give you go on the air. You just got here, so I guess you don't have a lot of confidential information at this point. The recorder stays on, or there's no conversation. Unless, of course, you are officially interrogating me. <laughs> you're the kind of person who's used to getting away with a lot, am I right, Miss Kersey? <laughs> Call me Emma. And no, I rarely get away with things. I'm just following a story. A story that involves a murder. I need all the material I can get. Okay, Emma. You can record. Let's agree, though, that that may change in the future. Deal. I listened to your podcast on my way here. Pretty interesting. Thank you. The whole mermaids thing, though. As I have said, I don't believe in mythological creatures, but I believe our murderer does. That's a theory. Do you have a different one? Not yet. I'm keeping an open mind. I can share all the information I have with you, Detective, though pretty much all of it makes it into the podcast. Thank you. I have a favor to ask you. Oh, sure. Can you put me in touch with Jacqueline Russo? Uh, I don't know. It's not like she and I are friends. I can promise to ask her. You know where she's staying. You could just tell me and I'll give her a visit. I know where she was staying a couple days ago. I doubt she's still there, though. I'll ask her. I can't break my source's trust. She's made a very serious accusation against Dr. Ananda and the law enforcement of this town. I know that, and as I say, I will try. I appreciate that. Emma, you spoke with Alice the day she died, is that correct? Uh, yeah. I spoke with her for about ten minutes or so. She wasn't making a lot of sense, though. She told you someone was after her, and then she died. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you're right. I guess in retrospect, it does. At the time, she seemed out of it, drugged up, kinda. Her sentences were disjointed. I'd really like to have a copy of all your interviews, if that's okay with you. Oh yeah, of course. I'd like us to cooperate with each other. You share with me what you find, and I'll share with you on-the-record information that wouldn't compromise the case. How does that sound? I can get on board with that. We talked for almost two hours. I shared with him all of my research and some of my theories. He listened and took notes. We ended our conversation with an exchange that summarizes Detective Jason in a nutshell. Thanks for your help, Emma. You're welcome. Hey, Detective, what's your first name? It's Robert, but I'd prefer you call me Detective Jason. (laughs) Okay, sure thing. Oh, God, you know, I have like an electric tingle in my stomach. Sure, I think it could be anticipation, but is that weird? Nah, I'm curious too. I think that Nadia's story will have a good dose of fiction in it. I think it'll be very revealing. She knows what's going on? She does. At least, part of it. John and I had a delivery to make, and we were expecting to get information in return. As I sat in the car, I couldn't stop imagining the conversation we'd have. I pictured her giving me the names of all the men involved in the kidnappings 
and maybe even the address of the place where the women were kept. I also imagined her being cryptic and me pushing her to drop the Ocean Princess Act and give me something I could use. I wasn't sure if Nadia's mermaid was an act or if she really believed she was a sea creature. I've met people with weird delusions in the past. She was hard to read, but if it was an act, she was fully committed to it, and I doubted I could make her break character. How forward do you think she's going to be? You know, she'll share as much of her truth as she can. You know, you can sound as cryptic as she does. You really believe her story, don't you? I think she believes her story. You know, I don't think she's lying, Emma. I think she lives her own truth, and she will hold her part of the deal and share it with us. But we need to dig into that truth to find out what we need. You like her. Uh, what's this now? Middle school? You like her. John is in love with the mermaid. <laughs> go on. You're insane, girl. We called Nadia several times to let her know we were coming. She never picked up or returned our calls, but we went ahead with the road trip anyway. Getting out of Murrow's Cove felt good. I was tired of the dirty looks on the streets and the whispers every time I walked in front of a group of people. A nice afternoon in Newport would calm my nerves. We arrived at her beachfront home in Newport around 3 p.m. I didn't feel great about showing up unannounced, but things were moving too fast and we couldn't waste time on formalities. Emma and John, I'm glad to see you. We call, but... I know, I'm sorry, I was busy. Come in. Can I offer you something to drink? It is after two. I can make cocktails. Uh, I'll, I'll take a beer if you have one. Classy. Jesus, I'm thirsty. A beer and two cocktails for us. Sure. Nadia was wearing what looked like a silky muumuu with a plunging neckline. The fabric had multicolored stripes. It was a rainbow made out of purple, gold, fuchsia, and a couple other bright tones of blue. Just as the first time I saw her, she looked stunning. We sat on the second floor's deck facing the blue ocean and listening to the chaotic complaining of the seagulls. Nadia brought John a brand of beer I'd never heard of, and she put in front of me a lemonade-looking liquid in a martini glass. Lemon lavender martinis. I found the recipe online. To die for. Very tasty. You found the painting. I have to be honest, I didn't think you would. I knew you were going to the house, I just thought you wouldn't find it. Jesus, we almost got killed there. Didn't your friend show up while we were going through his things? He is not my friend, and those are not his things. Well, most of them are not. Those are things he had stolen from people who have crossed his path. He's a thief and a collector. Yes, there are things that remind him of his own life, but nothing was really his. We were set up. He knew we were coming. He has many allies. I'm not surprised. What's important is that you were here and you brought to me what I asked you. Sure, we completed the quest. In a matter of speech. Well, now it's your turn. Don't worry, Emma. I offered you truths and truths I will give you, but let's be clear. What you do with those truths, what you get out of them, how you interpret them, 
What you believe and what you don't is up to you. That sounds fair. I don't care about your judgment or what you believe I am or I'm not. I'm giving you the truth as I know it. Got it. Let's start from the beginning then. My name was Simeon Peter, like the Apostle. I guess he thought that naming me after Christ's favorite would somehow clean my sinful conception. As I told you before, I was born a boy, and I felt like one most of my early years. My current form is the product of many complicated events, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I was the product of a moment of weakness. Alcohol and grief fueled the spark of my existence. Fate probably had something to do with it too. His wife and two daughters had succumbed to consumption. Years later, we would call it tuberculosis, but back then we named the illness for what it did to the poor souls who contracted it. People would waste away slowly and painfully. His family died one after another. First the youngest child, then the oldest, and at last the mother. He went insane with pain and grief. My mother was a slave, and I don't think she had much of a saying in my conception. My mother died before my brain was able to remember things. Some days I think I can see her big brown eyes and her sweet smile. Most days I think my mind plays tricks on me. Nobody wants to go through life without a memory of their mother. I never called him father, but I knew that we were tied by blood. I don't remember anybody ever telling me, I just knew. People assumed I was just an orphan slave the good reverend had taken under his wing. After all, he was a man of God. He was praised for his compassion and dedication. The fact that he never married again made him even more of a martyr in the eyes of his congregation. I can't be ungrateful, though. He gave me tools few of my people had in those days. He taught me the alphabet and read the Bible to me every night. When I was old enough, he gave me a diary in which he encouraged me to write a sentence or two every day. Over the years, that diary became my lifeline, my way to remember a life too long for any creature to remember. The early versions are scattered through this land. When you moved as often as I do, things get lost. These days, I'm trying to be more careful. He also taught me how to use the brushes. He said I had a gift from God. I could capture life on a blank canvas. I spent many nights painting. The exhaustion of the day never discouraged me. Painting made me feel important. I was capturing history. I was telling a story that nobody else could tell. This is the first real painting I ever did. I started it the day after I saw her dancing on the beach. Back then, I thought she was a witch. Now I know better. Get comfortable, Emma Kersey. This story is long. I'm Emma Kersey. This is Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is hosted by Emma Kersey and produced by John Murphy at Massachusetts Public Radio. On the next episode of Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. You look surprised, Emma, as if you were expecting the story to end anywhere else. Murrow's Cove, the mermaid's shelter, a place hand-picked by the gods of the ocean. Where else could the story begin? Don't miss the conclusion of Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. Like what you're hearing? Please rate and review us in iTunes. And tell your friends about Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. <laughs>